Since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, global health systems have been challenged like never before. As time and resources were directed towards responding to the virus, it was the dedication of healthcare workers that kept services running. Amongst the uncertainty, our hardworking Queensland clinicians have continued their pursuit of excellence, innovating and adapting the way they work to ensure consumers always receive the best care possible. To them, the pandemic was an opportunity to learn and grow and to ensure healthcare delivery continues to evolve to the ever-changing landscape. Because if we've learned anything from the last two years, it is that things will always change and our clinicians will always rise to the occasion. The corporate world transitioned quickly to working from home and endless video chats when the pandemic struck. The transition for our healthcare system, while keeping patients at the forefront, was much more complex. How did our clinicians manage to keep hospitals open and functioning for those who needed them, meet the potential demands of COVID surges, and transition care safely where possible? While I would say dedication and a little creativity, I'll defer to them. So what I would like to do in this workshop is, uh, first of all, just give you a bit of context to talk about what's known about AC advanced care planning in Queensland and what clinicians have told us about barriers and enablers for advanced care planning and then ask you about, given that, what strategies can we use to increase ACP activity in general, but particularly now uh, before the COVID-19 border restrictions are lifted, because those border restrictions are going to make a big difference. So in terms of, okay, just for, I don't want to tell you how to suck eggs, but just quick definitions. ACP is the voluntary iterative process whereby a person reflects, discusses, and ideally documents uh, their wishes or direction for healthcare, particularly towards the end of their lives. And these such documents are only ever used if the person can no longer speak for themselves. Uh, so it's a way of ensuring your preferences or doing the best you can to ensure your preferences. The problem with ACP is it needs to be done proactively. What we know about COVID-19 is it can start as a fairly innocuous sort of disease. People don't feel that crook. Lots of people can be late to present. But then what happens is that it'll ramp really quickly, especially in the frail elderly, and with devastating increasing shortness of breath and respiratory distress. So in those circumstances, it's just not meaning, it's just not possible to have meaningful or empathetic conversations about how a person could be treated or how they want to be treated with this illness. In Queensland, right at the moment, we have a very decreasing window of opportunity to increase advanced care planning discussions before the border restrictions are eased. So what do we know internationally about advanced care planning? Well, internationally, we know that it's the foundation of person-centred end-of-life care 
and it's known to represent high value care because it improves patient outcomes. That's been shown many, many times. It decreases moral distress for decision makers, and that includes all of you, but particularly for families, for non-paid carers, and for substitute decision makers. We know that in the grieving, in the bereavement, that people feel so much better if they feel like they've acted in accordance with what the person wanted. So that's very important, that decreasing that moral distress for decision makers. And finally, it improves health systems. It's been shown to be a very effective intervention and efficient. So that's internationally. What do we know for Queensland in particular? And I can tell you that in terms of our technology and our systems that are set up, Queensland's really leading Australia in this, especially with our viewer and our IMR systems and also with the statewide Office of Advanced Care Planning. So just to see how we were going, you know, we, we figured that if we can't get concordance between what people say they want and the actual care that they can get, then we're wasting our time and a lot of resources. So we did an audit of over 600 decedents across the five big HHSs to have a look at that concordance. And what we found across three different measures was very high concordance, ranging between 79 to 100%. So basically, we looked at the statement of choices. I'm, I'm sure most anybody here not, not heard of the statement of choices? Great. So, so what we looked at were, we had a look at people who had completed a statement of choice and they'd uploaded it to the viewer. And what we found was that they were significantly more likely to die in the place that they said they wanted to die in. And that meant decreasing deaths in hospital as well. Most people don't want to die in hospital. Some people absolutely do. But in the main, especially older or frailer people, they don't want to die in hospital. We also found that in accordance with their wishes, they spent less time in hospital. And finally, they were less likely to be admitted to ICU. What we also found was the earlier that somebody's involved in these advanced care planning discussions and the earlier this stuff is documented, then the more likely they're going to get concordance as they get sick and deteriorate. So advanced care planning is not an acute intervention. It needs to be done early. So that, if you like, is the patient outcomes. What about the system outcomes? So we went to OSHI at QUT, which does all the economic whiz-bang stuff, and asked them to do an economic evaluation of advanced care planning in Queensland. So that was an audit of more than 18,500 people who died in Queensland. That's a big number. We get between 30 and 35,000 deaths each year. So that's a very good sample size. And basically what they found was that there is a significant reduction of more than $4,000 per person who dies in the last six months of their lives in terms of hospital costs if they had a statement of choices uploaded to the viewer. 
And what contributed to that was, first of all, significantly lower rates of ED presentation, and doesn't Queensland Health love that? Significantly lower rates of hospital, administration, uh, hospital admissions, significantly less ICU admissions, and finally, significantly fewer deaths in hospital. So clearly, this is high-value care. Good for patients, good for systems. So what's the problem here? Well, the problem is that I can't advance a slide. Right. <laughs> the problem is, <laughs> the problem is that we know the rates of advanced care planning in Queensland are decreasing. This is the graph for Metro South Health, where I come from, so I feel okay about showing this. And you can see a precipitous drop here, and that's because we're losing our facilitators. We are losing people who are skilled at upskilling other clinicians and also having these discussions. So we didn't know what to do about that. So then we sent out a survey to see whether asking all of you, <laughs> asking you about barriers enablers for ACP. How can we change this and try to get more advanced care planning happening across the state? This survey has just come back in recently. We had 751 respondents. Thanks everyone who was a part of this. And the, uh, the profession that was uh, numbered the most in responses were nurses and we run on nurses and we run on allied health and also administrative officers. So thank you very much for doing this everyone. The thing that I want to point out with this just for later on is see the GPs there? There were only 17 GPs who responded to this and that's important for later on. We then asked you guys to rate um, the top three barriers for, for being involved in advanced care planning. The way it turned out, there were four, so I'm just going to read them all out to you. First of all, lack of knowledge or confidence to provide ACP discussions, and we see that all the time. People, our clinicians are task-focused, time-pressured, and if they lack these, the, if they feel they lack confidence in having these discussions, then they stay away from them. Clinicians also perceive that patients don't want to involve themselves in these ACP conversations. Finally, the clinicians say that the healthcare culture is geared towards life-prolonging treatments, and indeed it is. That's why we go to hospital to get better. And then finally, there is clinician reluctance to engage in these ACP conversations. So what we've got happening here is a perfect storm of collusion between the public who's death-denying and clinicians who are also death-denying and see it as a failure. So this is a very important cultural block that we've somehow got to get around to get the best outcomes for our patients into the future. So they were the barriers. So what were the enablers? Well, it was really the flip side of that. It was increased public awareness. Oh, we're only asked for two, for two in this, but three came up, really. Increased public awareness of the importance of ACP. If people knew what it could do for them and their families and the people that they left behind. Experience in holding ACP conversations, if we could upskill people in that. 
and finally, dedicated skilled clinicians in the area of ACP. There's been various studies that show that facilitators in these areas, the people who know what they're, they're doing and have these empathetic conversations can upskill other clinicians as well as be involved in complex discussions. So then finally, we asked, so who of, in the healthcare team uh, should be conducting these ACP discussions? And have a look at that. There, there were, everybody said, you know, the vast majority of people said, GPs should be doing this. And this is what we see all the time with advanced care planning. It's not my job, it's the GP's job. The GP's job say, we don't know what happens when our patients acutely deteriorate, should be the hospital job. The residential aged care facility say it should be done before people come in. So this just goes round and round in circles about who should do what. So why is it so important? Because, especially for COVID-19, because the, these discussions can really relieve fear and inform care decisions about what people want. If people know that there's going to be visitor restrictions or they mightn't be able to get the care that they need or they don't know what's available to them, it can really make uh, providing care difficult. So now really what I'd like to do is ask you, so based on those survey findings, really what we need is a two-pronged approach to increasing ACP. We need to increase public awareness of the benefits of ACP, and we need to increase the clinical capacity of healthcare providers to engage in the conversations. I'd really like to hear how you think we can do that. Yes, sorry, I, it's hard for me to see. Okay, how, will we uh, how do we deliver that education, do you reckon? So using, using simulation as a way of modelling the conversations and, and increasing comfort with the clinicians and how to have those difficult conversations. Great, thank you. Another one up the back. Yes, I can hear you. So two-prong approach there, using the screensavers as a prompt for all staff to start the conversation, but encouraging particularly RMOs to start the conversation and to see their GPs to continue the conversation. Good idea. Thank you. Just, just sorry, in front of you. Yes, thanks. And Victoria government did something similar, but that's a good idea. Thank so you. So just to repeat for everyone else, using televisions and outpatients to, rather than free to air, using it to promote public, um, to promote health messages, including this. Having the conversation with everyone over the age 18 and starting with your own family. And that's certainly cheap and Queensland Health would love that. So we've all got, we've all got homework to do tonight. Thank you. So another multi-pronged. Uh, thank you. Get that yeah, I, I got that. Thank you. And what we actually we do have that well, we we do have the mechanism. We send copies of the documents to GPs. They would be able to now to modify them and to send them to us electronically. We can do that. 
Okay. Thank you. Now, at least we've got time for one more question. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so making it a, a positive conversation, but also ensuring our patients understand what might happen if they don't have a document in place, um, recognising that perhaps fear of those um, outcomes may help encourage uptake as well. Thank you. Now, Liz, um, if people have other suggestions, can they contact you in the break or via the app? Uh, yes, or via the app, yes. Okay, all right, everyone, we might wrap that up now. Thank you all so much for your time and attention. As always, thank you for listening to our podcast and taking the time to learn about the wonderful work of Queensland's frontline clinicians. To continue the conversation, head on over to Facebook and let us know of any pockets of excellence you think deserve to be showcased. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Clinical Excellence Queensland.